All right. At the end of seminary, one of my profs um, uh, had me submit a paper to a national competition in history writing. And so off the paper goes, and I was nervous. And again, the voice was like, you're not going to do any, you're not going to win because you're not smart enough. And that's what I felt. And I was competing against grad students from Princeton, Yale, Duke, Notre Dame. Do you know who won the competition? I had the prize, money, check, and certificate in front of me. And do you know what the voice said? Yeah, it's probably because no one else submitted a paper. (laughs) Okay? You have an inner voice. You do, just like I do. You have an inner voice that is talking to you about you all the time. And it's saying things to you about yourself. And there are three things, before I get into the scripture part, there are three things I want to flesh out about your inner voice. Thing number one, everyone has an inner voice, everyone. Every man, woman, boy and girl has a voice, inner voice that talks to them about themselves, everybody. Thing number two, everyone's voice is negative. Thing number three, everyone's voice lies to them. Your inner voice is a liar. And so I I want to make a case for that, so I'm going to kind of unpack this a little bit, okay? So... Everyone has an inner voice. I don't think I, I need to, to convince you of that, but it's shaped in childhood, and it goes with you everywhere you go, and it's saying things to you about yourself. And, and as soon as I said that, I could see on your faces, oh, yeah, man. Okay, so the second thing, right, your inner voice is usually negative. John, Jonathan Acuff has written a book called Start, and in it he makes this claim, and he says, everybody's inner voice is, is inherently negative. And at age 44, in my own experience, I can say I've met all kinds of people in life. I've met people in prison. I've met and talked to people who were in prostitution. I've met self-made multimillionaires who ran very successful businesses. I've not met someone yet whose inner voice was, you can do it. When you submit that project, it's going to win the patent. You're going to be the best thing ever. You're pretty. No one's inner voice. No. Your inner voice might sound a little bit more like Morgan Freeman. Mine's really high-pitched. Okay? But I've not met anyone yet whose inner voice was positive and affirming. Everyone that I've met in life so far, and I've met lots of people, their inner voice is negative and usually condemning. And so it's the oddest thing. It's the oddest thing. And that inner voice will say, you know, you're not smart enough. You're too late. You're not good enough. You're the wrong person. That's another thing the voice loves to do is, who are you to think you could do that? It does. And so uh, our inner voice is telling us those things about ourselves. And so if you're a teenager, I want you to pay attention, especially today, because I'm going to tell you something that could save you a lot of grief in life, because you're just starting off. And believe it or not, your voice is already talking to you. It is. And I want to help you this morning kind of take some things that would reset your inner voice so that it's saying things that God would want you to hear. All right? Because your inner voice uh, actually lies to you. Um, It really does. Last week, I'll give you a perfect example. Okay? So I'm saying to you, your inner voice lies to you. Last week, um, I had this idea I wanted to talk about. 
you know, what happens when you have a dream and a promise and you take that first step and there's this difference, right? So that was my idea that I had for the sermon. Um, on Saturday, before the sermon, the voice in my head was saying to me, that message isn't done yet. You don't have enough points of application. It's not done cooking. You can't deliver that message. It's not good enough. It was the voice. I had this conversation with Jenny, and I basically took that voice and then put it in my own voice, and it came out of my mouth. And I said those things, those things to Jenny. And Jenny looked at me and was like, were you an idiot? <laughs> preach that message. That's what God given you. Don't quit. You know, quit. You know, you're overthinking things. Just preach it. She's much more kind when she talks to me, okay? <laughs> it just seems that way from my vantage point, okay? So, you know, the male mind, all right? So, so I deliver the message. And the funny, th the weird thing is, as soon as it's done, somebody's got me by the arm. And they're like, this is so where I am. And I've been struggling, you know, should I keep going on about what I'm doing? And, and I was ready to hang it up. And this morning when I was reading the Bible, God just said to me, listen, listen today, listen. You need to know God spoke to me today. Tears are rolling down her eyes as she's telling me this. Then this week, I sat down with not one, not two, but three different people who said the same thing. Now, first of all, it wasn't Max Vanderpool. It was God showing up. But what if I had listened to my voice and tucked that away and not done that message that God had given me? See, your inner voice can sometimes lie to you. So today, I want to wade in to your inner voice. I want to give you some practical advice. I want to warn you that your inner voice is going to try and get you to quit. Your inner voice is even going to try and do things so that you don't even start out on something that God's asking you to do. And so to do that, uh, I want to peer into the life of a man named Gideon. Gideon's life story is recorded in the book of Judges. Right? So if you, if you brought a Bible along, you can open it to Judges chapter 6. That's where we're going to be today. Gideon is the only judge in the book who's personally called by God in a theophany. <gasps> I know. It's a geeky theological world. A theophany is just a big fancy word for saying special personal appearance of God himself. Woo! You know, burning bush. Think burning bush. It's God. Ooh. Okay? So a theophany is God showing up in person. So now... When I was a kid, I never understood what a judge was. I was always confused. Anytime preachers talked about it, and there was like, so a guy in a black robe is like leading an army in battle. That does not make sense. Okay, so, but I get it now that I moved to Kentucky. Because seriously, when I moved to Kentucky, everybody I met was either a judge or a colonel. They were. Judge Wilson, Colonel Sanders. I mean, it's, you know, and so... Our first landlord was Judge Wilson, and I, for the, you know, the first six months that we moved here, it's like, oh, so he's a retired judge. You know, he wore a black robe, sat on a bench. No, he was the judge executive, which is basically a fancy word for saying mayor of the county. But in Kentucky, we call them judge executives, and everybody throws off the executive part, and they just call him judge. Well, you want to get that done, y'all need to go see the judge or Judge Wilson. Or in here, in Jesmond County, let's go see Judge Cassidy. Well, he doesn't wear a black robe. Okay, so in the Bible, even though this word is used, judge, it means leader, leader. Army leader, king-like person, king, you know, think leader, right? So there you go. So Gideon is the only leader of all the leaders chosen in this book to be personally called by God. And this is the interaction that happens when God shows up. Poof, okay? That's verse 11. 
Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Oprah, which belonged to the Joash, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiazar. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. I always think angels have deep, booming voices. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord said to him, I'll be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Gideon replied, If you're truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove it's really you, the Lord, speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. I'm characterizing some voices here. <laughs> for added spiritual emphasis. <laughs> you don't get those in other churches, okay? They're free here, okay? But you got this interplay, okay? So God shows up. God wants Gideon to do something. And there are eerie similarities between the calling of Gideon and the calling of Moses from Exodus 3. There's the right off the get-go, get-go, God appears and says, I am, I've chosen you. You're the one. You're it. Moses and Gideon both. Then there's the uh, protest. Gideon's protest is, our clan is the weakest of all the tribes of Israel, and I'm the least in my family. And then there's Moses, you know, who am I that you should send me to free the sons of Israel or lead them out of Egypt? Who am I? I'm, no, I'm nobody. And then there's the promise that God makes to each of them. He says to Gideon, I will be with you. He says to Moses, I will be with you. Then it's a little bit different than that Gideon's the one that goes, give me a sign. I need a sign. Show me something. Billboard. I'll take anything, really. Magic trick. Okay. <laughs> then there's Moses, to which he says, here's the staff. This will be a sign that I'm with you. God's a little bit more directive. And then each one ends up with a fire. In Gideon's case, it's an offering that's consumed by fire. In Moses' case, it's the burning bush that doesn't burn up, but is still burning. It's, you know, one of those things. Okay? So, eerie similarities between the two. But let's, let's go back and let's flesh some things out. So, verse 13. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? No, 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 no. Why, why, why? Gideon's a fella who seems unaware of how things work in God's economy. God made it very clear. You go to the promised land, you do this, you prosper. You don't do this, you're not going to prosper. You're going to be oppressed. So the Midianite oppression is an indicator that the Israelites aren't doing what they're supposed to do. They, they're disobeying. But instead of acknowledging that, Instead of acknowledging any culpability, Gideon's like, well, I don't understand. How come we're being oppressed? And it's kind of whiny. It's kind of cynical. But it shows a lack of faith, I think. And, and we'll get that. We'll flesh that out. There's a lot going on here in this passage. There's the, what God sees and what Gideon sees. There's God's grace that, that's played out. 
So here's a guy just like Moses who doesn't want to be used, doesn't want to be the one, doesn't want to stand up to the Midianites, feels he, he you know, I just can't. I'm, I'm the weakest. My, my clan's the weakest. It's not going to work. But God uses him anyway. God delivers Israel anyway. And so you see God's grace on display. But I want to unpack something that I think sheds a light on this inner voice thing that plays out for you and me. And that is the things that Gideon says about himself versus what God says about him. Did you catch the difference? I added voices for special emphasis, right? Okay? So there's God, you know, hello, mighty hero, versus my clan's the weakest. There's go with the strength you have. I'm the weakest, smallest member of my family. I'm the least. There's the rescue Israel and the, well, if it's really you, then could, you know. And so isn't it interesting what plays out for Gideon? I think, I really believe that you see this in Bible character after Bible character. And this isn't a story. These are real people that lived in real times, but they struggled with the same thing that you and I struggle with. Many of them had an inner voice that told them things about themselves that weren't necessarily true. And the net result is when you believe what your negative inner voice is saying, nine times out of ten, you're not going to step out in faith and do things where you're obeying God. You're not sure you can count on God either, and it results in a lack of faith. So let me ask some, let me, let me flesh some things out, okay? So when it comes to your inner voice that's telling you stuff, right? Is your inner voice asking you a question? Um, one of the questions that, that an inner voice loves to ask is, who are you to think you could do that? And really, that question isn't a question as much as it is an accusation. And the Bible is very clear about what to do with your accuser, right? Okay, so who are you to think you could do that? And, and that could be anything. Become a veterinarian, get out of debt, you know, who are you to think you can't pull that off? Um, the funny thing is how often you and I can be robbed of opportunities when we listen to that inner voice. Um, a number of years ago, Asbury University came to me and said, would you teach a class on small groups? You know the first thing my inner voice said to me? That very question, who are you to teach a class on small groups, Asbury? They should hire somebody that's got like a hundred small groups. You've only been in however many and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Who are you to think you could do that? You know, the funny thing is, the last few cycles of the, uh, the class, I've gotten the best evaluations in the department. And it's not because I'm all that. It's because I talk about the, you know, here's where we misstepped. Here's where we failed. And everybody's like, oh. I'm not, you know, <laughs> right? Okay? So, and it's been, like, encouraging for everybody, all right? So, but I could have let my voice talk me out of an opportunity, and I've personally been pumped by the opportunities to, to teach the class. So, does your voice accuse you and ask you this question? Who are you to think you could do that? And then secondly, um, does your voice tell you that you're too late? Do, as you're turning things in your head, do you find yourself thinking things of, ah, oh, you know what, Max, you're just behind. Oh, you could just get ahead, then you could. You, know, you just need to get ahead. And if you got ahead, you could, but 
You're not going to get ahead. You're always going to be behind. It's just too late. Does your inner voice say things like that to you? Then lastly, do you have an inner voice that's telling you it's got to be perfect? I know there are a number of us at Generations, and that's, that's a struggle, right? It's got to be, it's got to be just so. And if it's not just so, man, you can't offer it. You can't walk with it. You can't run with it. Um, when I was in my first graduate degree, I was working on a thesis, and Jenny was teaching, okay? So I would sit at the computer, and I would write a paragraph, and I would look at it, and I would go, that's not good enough. And I would delete the whole paragraph. I'd write another one. I would do this like 60 times throughout the course of a day. Jenny would come home and ask me, so what did you get done today? And I had nothing but a blank screen to show her. Talk about a big husband wife. Ouch! <laughs> right in her mind, she's like, what is the problem? These are the keys. You punch the keys. It translates into characters on the screen. You know, it comes out of your brain to your fingers. It's, you know, it's not rocket science. You just write, right? She's like, no. So, by the way, to, that's why today all of my stuff is always handwritten. There's a practical thing. The beautiful thing about handwriting stuff with ink, there's no delete button. You just keep, you know, if you don't like it, you scratch it off, but you have to write something new, okay? So some of you have chastised me in the past. How come you don't preach from an iPad? Well, that's why. It's because I'm, I'm beating my inner voice, and I'm resetting my inner voice so that it's more in line with what God wants and how God wants to use me, right? So what do you do? How do you reset an inner voice that's inherently negative or that may be lying to you? How do you go about doing that? I'm going to give you a couple of steps that I'm stealing shamelessly from Jonathan Acuff, which I think he's spot on about, okay? So he says the very first thing you do is you document them. You write them down. So my question to you is, what does your voice tell you on an ongoing basis? Write that down. Literally, write it down on a piece of paper, put it on a screen. Why would you do that? Well, when it's there and you can stare at it, do you know what will happen 10 times out of 10? You'll go, that's dumb, and you'll probably laugh. I can't believe I let that turn in my head like that. That is totally dumb. That's not true when it's staring at you on a piece of paper. But when it's churning in your mind, it's something totally different. It's a weird thing. So document it, write it down, stare at it, and then laugh out loud at how ridiculous it really is. All right? The second thing is to take that written, those written down things and share them with somebody. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's a close friend. Maybe it's your community. And you share it with them. And in the context of sharing, two things will happen. One is you'll find out you're not alone. They've got a voice too. Because, right, you'll share this and you'll go, oh, well, you know, my voice tells me. Boom. And then the, the, the second thing is it will be encouraging because you'll see everybody's struggling with inner voice. And, man, I can take steps. I can reset this thing on the inside. And you can, because God wanted Gideon to see what God saw in Gideon. Not some weakest of the weakest clan, but as somebody who would simply be faithful and trust him, God could use to deliver an entire nation out of oppression. If only he could see what God could see. And so, let me ask you this question. What does your inner voice tell you on an ongoing basis? And if you're beating yourself up on an ongoing basis, I'd like to encourage you to dial God in on that 
Because just like Gideon, God's got a different perspective than what that voice is probably telling you. If you're a teenager here today, I would love to ask you, give you an assignment if you're a teenager. If you're a teenager, what I'd love for you to do is make an appointment with your mom and dad, or dad, one of them, and ask them point blank. So, inner voice stuff. Is that really true? Do you have an inner voice? What does your inner voice tell you, mom? What does your inner voice tell you, dad? A little bit of vulnerability, but huge payoff for you as a teenager is twofold. One, it's going to make your parents a lot more human to you. Two, uh, you're gonna, it's going to strengthen the connection. Because one of the things you'll see as a kid is when your mom or dad say that, you'll go, well, that's silly. <laughs> well, that's not true. Okay? William Wilberforce was a man who grew up in the 1700s uh, of, of England. That's where he lived, in England. And uh, he was a social butterfly in college. The way we would say that today in 2013 is we would say, William Wilberforce was a frat boy who loved the party scene, and he did. He drank, he played around, he did all the things that you can do when you're in college. Now, some of you who are younger, you're like, they did that stuff in the 1700s? I know, they did. And William Wilberforce did those things. And he got into politics, and when he first got into politics, there were two parties, and he would vacillate between the two in terms of what he would support. And so over the course of time, he developed a little bit of a reputation of being wishy-washy and a party animal. Really good traits if you're going to be the person that's going to lead the entire nation to abolish slavery. Nah! <laughs> William Wilberforce had that inner voice, so he found God, God found him, and he gave his heart, he gave his life over to Jesus Christ. He became a born-again Christian. And people who were mentoring him encouraged him, you know what, we need to get rid of slavery. This is a blight on the crown, this is a blight on England, we need to get rid of it. You, God is, I, we believe God is, is putting you in a position to be the linchpin for abolishing slavery throughout England. He had a Gideon moment. Me? Little old party, Oxford animal me, Two-Face, Wilberforce, lead the charge. He had those inner voices, that inner voice that told him all these things, but instead of, instead of believing it, he kept taking steps. He kept taking steps. He actually got so old he had to step out of Parliament in 1826, but in 1833, British Parliament passed a law abolishing slavery throughout the realm. Something that we had to fight a horrible civil war to solve here in the United States. It was solved in England without firing a single shot, and all historians, Christian or not, all point back to one man as being the driving force. One person changed the course of a nation. And he did so because his belief and his walking out of faith was in God and not what his inner voice was telling him. And so that's what I want for you. I want you to have that kind of freedom, and I want you to keep walking and not let that inner voice t take you out along the way. Because you know what? Your inner voice is a liar. I'm just saying.